And one of the cool things that we've actually pioneered, we're the first place in the entire country to do, they had this voter accountability project where they take every single ballot cast in Humboldt County, they scan it, and then they put it up on the internet. And so basically any voter can go and count up the ballots from the election. You're tuning in to the College of the Redwoods podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Sendejas, a business professor at the Eureka campus. And our goal for this is to spread value that is entertaining, educational, and relevant information about the world around us from an array of experts and specialists that we have on our College of the Redwoods campus. So keep doing those dishes, keep driving, keep running, but just turn up the volume a little bit and let's get to the episode. Ryan, Gary, good morning and welcome to the podcast episode. I'm super stoked to have you guys on. I will first let Ryan and Gary, our two guests here today, um, give about 30 seconds of who they are, the classes they teach, and their area of focus in political science. And then we'll get talking about voting and the Voters' Rights Act. So Ryan, would you like to go first? Yeah. Hey, uh, nice to speak with you, Matthew. Um, so uh, I'm Professor Ryan Emenaker. Uh I uh, love teaching at College of the Redwoods. Um, I teach uh, mostly intro to U.S. government, but I also get to teach political controversies. Uh, I teach uh, political philosophy, uh, occasionally state and local politics, uh, and campaigns and elections. And my area of expertise, really, though, is constitutional law. So um, uh, I have a textbook out that talks about current debates in American government, and I have a manuscript that's uh, coming out uh, that's all about how to reform the Supreme Court and make it work more efficiently. Uh, I've written for SCOTUS blog. Um, I've written arguments about the Voting Rights Act for SCOTUS blog. Um, I've written, you know, some of my writings have been published in the American Encyclopedia of American Governments and in some other places as well. But uh, constitutional law, um, particularly separation of powers. So the struggle between Congress and the courts is where I really emphasize. Awesome. Sweet. Well, great having you on here and great to hear from you. Uh, Gary. Hi, everybody. My name is Gary Sokolow. I've been at CR about 20 odd plus years. Uh, I mainly teach uh, criminal justice classes, but I also teach, I've taught political science for some time now. The only two poli-sci courses I teach are the bread and butter American government course and state and local politics every couple of years. I also teach um, history, you know, U.S. history courses from the beginnings to the present day. And of course, voting rights figures prominently in many periods of American history. And I also have some time in my past life as a public servant for seven years in a couple of different political offices. Awesome. Wow. You guys are definitely have a wealth of knowledge in the area of political science. So I'm super stoked to talk to you about voting and the Voters' Rights Act. And for all the viewers listening, I think if there's one or two things you could gain out of this podcast, it's it's to learn a little about history of voting and and, and why it's important to vote. And and really the Voters' Rights Act and the importance it has in the world around us today. I think the first thing we could go over is the history of the Voters' Rights Act and and why did we need it and, and when it started. Yeah, so the, the most recent, so there's been a series of Voting Rights Act, but the most recent one and the one everyone talks about is the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, there had been a few in 1957 and a few before that. So up until the Civil War, we have legalized slavery in this country. Uh, 13th Amendment abolishes legalized slavery. But 75 years after that, um, we still see almost no African-Americans able to vote. So for example, in 1940, uh, 97% of voting age adult Blacks could not cast a ballot in the Deep South. 
So here we are long past where voting rights are supposed to have been bestowed based on the 15th Amendment. And we see no example of that happening for the most part. 97% of Blacks in the South who are voting age unable to vote. So the 1957 was an attempt to deal with it. The 1965 Voting Rights Act is typically seen as the crown jewel of civil rights legislation, probably the most effective piece of legislation we've seen in United States history. One example of that would be that uh, one year prior to the Voting Rights Act being adopted, so 1964, 7% of Blacks were registered in Mississippi. Two years after its adoption, that number goes up to over 60%. And we see similar numbers in Alabama and other states. So votes being denied uh, for a long time. And so the Voting Rights Act comes in and largely makes some of the most significant changes we've ever seen. So necessary because the 15th Amendment, as its promise, is not being implemented. And the Voting Rights Act makes that real so that now we truly can start to say that votes are not being denied based on race. It's not perfect, but it is probably the most dramatic shift we've seen in U.S. history. Awesome. Wow. Gary, would you like to add anything? Just very briefly, if if uh, our our listeners out there would like an interesting account of some of the the ways the South used to deliberately and cruelly suppress voting rights, um, Father Theodore Hesburgh wrote a book about his time at Notre Dame University, and he was one of President Eisenhower's original appointees to the 1957 Civil Rights Commission for the United States. And uh, Congress only grudgingly, as Ryan intimated, you know, they're only grudgingly Southern members of Congress supportive, if uh, even that. And in anyhow, in one of the chapters of his book called God, Country, Notre Dame, he recounts his experience and most significantly with why the U.S. Civil Rights Commission in 1957 chose voting rights as the very first civil rights issue they tackle. And in that chapter, he gives numerous examples of way through literacy tests, poll taxes, and a number of devices that Southern states use to suppress uh, voter participation. So uh, I commend that to those who have a, who'd like to dig more into it. Gary makes a really important point there, right? So what the 15th Amendment said was that, that no state could deny the right to vote based on race. So what states did then is they came up with various strategic ways that they're saying, well, it's not based on race. So they came up with like, one thing was called a grandfather clause. Essentially, if your grandfather could vote, you were allowed to vote. But if you have a legacy of slavery that's based on heredity, then descendants of slaves will never be able to vote. But their argument was, we're not denying it based on race. It's based on a grandfather clause. And there were several things like this where they, uh, literacy tests or poll taxes, where it clearly was targeting people of color and preventing them from voting, but they could make this argument that it wasn't about that. And that's where the Voting Rights Act becomes so important because it starts to target these types of limitations on votes, voting that does not specifically say race, but they've got this oh, well, if we do this, it will target the group we want to without specifically saying we're doing it based on race. Mm. And so the Voting Rights Act starts to change that. And that's still the fight that we're seeing now around the Voting Rights Act, where there are specific voting policies that might disproportionately target communities of color. Um, but the argument that's made by those that adopt it is like, well, it's it's about something else, whether it's voter fraud or something. So, and so this is still the tension around the Voting Rights Act, uh, even you know years later. Mm-hmm. And- as we are today with the Voters' Rights Act, I mean, it's about 60 or, yeah, 60-something years since 1965. Um, I mean, how how many times has it been reauthorized? And it's it's been reauthorized a few times. And what are the major times and points in time that it was reauthorized? And why was it reauthorized? 
I'll defer so, to Ryan on that one. Sure. Yeah. This is like <laughs> one of the areas where I've, I've written some stuff and I've done some research. So this is awesome. like my bailiwick. Um, Perfect. But uh, the 1965 act had certain provisions that were going to sunset. So they were meant to run out after a period of time. Uh, so it gets reauthorized in total. It's been reauthorized five times since 1965. It first gets reauthorized in 1970, then 1975, 1982, 1992, 2006. Mm. Uh, slight tweaks and changes with each one. Uh, the most important probably changes is coming in probably 1982. Um, that makes a pretty important change that relates to what's going on recently before the Supreme Court. But certain provisions in the Voting Rights Act were going to sunset. And so the Congress had to reauthorize them and keep reauthorizing them. Uh, one of the interesting things about it, though, is each time the Voting Rights Act gets more popular. So in 1965, when it passes, it has a decent majority, but not that much. By 19, by 2006, uh, 98 to nothing in the Senate and uh, something like 390 to 33 in the House. So it's become more popular over time. In fact, one interesting story is Strom Thurmond, who ran under the segregationist ticket in the 1940s. He, by, 2000, by uh, 1982, is actually voting in favor of the Voting Rights Act. So here is a person who literally ran on a ticket of segregation, um, opposed the Voting Rights Act vehemently in the 60s, but then by 1982 realizes either he's had a change of heart or he realizes you can no longer oppose the Voting Rights Act and get voted in South Carolina. Um, and so we see a dramatic change. So it actually became more popular over time, probably as it was seen as incredibly effective. And as we had more voters, right, Strom Thurmond could oppose the Voting Rights Act in 1965 because black voters couldn't vote. By 1982, he couldn't oppose it if he wanted to get elected in South Carolina because black voters could vote. And Ryan touches upon a point there, the Southern politicians. I've long wondered whether politicians, Southerners like George Wallace, uh, who was also a key opponent of voting rights in his home state and certainly encouraged members of Congress from his state to oppose it, whether he was sincere in his change or not. And the cynical part of me says no, for reasons Ryan advocated that uh, a number of his constituents, most of his constituents now are able to vote. And that, to me, explains much of his about face, like Strom Thurmond. Let's talk about the the Shelby County versus Holder case, because that was in 2013. Very controversial case, um, a Supreme Court case. And Ryan or Gary, you want to kick us off on on the, the importance of that case in the Voters' Rights Act? So I was actually in the Supreme Court the day they handed down the decision on that. Wow. So I'm, I'm an avid Supreme Court watcher. Um, I've seen them hand down more than 100 opinions. That was one of them. Uh, I had written uh, an article for SCOTUS blog, which is sort of this premier site for debates about the Supreme Court on why the court should uphold the Voting Rights Act. And I was in the courtroom when the, the decision came down. The, the big dilemma at that point, right, is this particular provision in the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act is seen as the most successful piece of legislation in U.S. history in terms of civil rights. One of the ways it did that is it came up with this very novel idea of called preclearance, where certain jurisdictions throughout the country that had a history of discrimination, before they could make any changes to their voting laws, they had to get it pre-cleared by the Justice Department, um, which basically meant that these types of laws that places would do in the past where they would be like, oh, well, we're doing this to, you know, for literacy, we're doing this. What would generally happen is they would implement the law and the law would get struck down after the election. And then they would just come up with a new way to deny the vote. It was kind of like whack-a-mole. You'd hit one down and they would just come up. But by the time the damage was done, the election was over. So preclearance meant that you couldn't make the change, have the election, and have that awful law on the books. So that's what really made it successful. 
the big debate was the formula used to determine which jurisdictions had to get pre-cleared was based largely on a formula from the 60s and 70s, which meant that it was largely jurisdictions in the South that were having to pre-clear where jurisdictions uh, in other parts of the country may not have to. This set up a debate around states' rights and the federal government intervening too much in states and this discrimination between the states. So why should Oregon be treated one way while perhaps South Carolina is treated another? Um, the court had said that was justified in the 1970s based on the extreme need. By 2013, the court had said by a slim majority, five to four, they said, no, this is no longer justified. Um, if people want to read my piece on SCOTUS, I make a strong argument for why that's wrong. Um, you can look up my name on there and read that. So I, I have a strong argument that it says that that just was not the right decision that the court made. But I understand the other viewpoint that like there is a troubling nature of which jurisdictions were forced to cover and should we update that formula so that we're getting the most egregious violations of voting rights having to pre-clear, not just jurisdictions that were based perhaps on this 1970s formula. So after 2013, am I right by saying that states then didn't have to go to the Supreme Court by making voting law changes? So they, yeah, they no longer had to appeal to the Justice Department to make their changes beforehand. Um, no. So that's what the, the law, what got struck down in that court case. What that meant was uh, within two hours of that decision, so literally I was in the courtroom. By the time I walked out of the courtroom, uh, Texas had already said it was going to go forward with the law that was previously prevented by preclearance. Uh, within 48 hours of that decision, six states had said they were going forward with laws that were previously prevented because they were seen as discriminatory. And by the time we had the next election cycle, there were hundreds of laws that would have been prevented by preclearance that had all been on the books. So we saw a dramatic overnight shift based on this court case. Uh, for those of us that study courts, it's sometimes hard to see, here's a court decision, what's the effects? Here's one of these things where it's like, we could see effects dramatic and right after the fact. And that's not very common for us that study courts, mm -hmm. but it was like, oh my, this really changed things. And by, by changing things, was it making it harder to vote? Were some of these states making it more challenging for voters to cast a ballot? That absolutely was an effect. Uh, the, the advocates that are making these law changes, right, their argument is these are changes that were necessary for other reasons. Uh, they may acknowledge in some cases that, well, that might be the effect of what happens, but um, that's not the intention. Um, so, you know, intention is always really hard to judge, uh, but we can look at effects pretty clearly. Uh, there definitely was the effect that um, that a lot of people lost their ability to vote based on this. So that's a real struggle. There was a remain provision in the Voting Rights Act that was still supposed to be useful to protect voting rights. And that's one of the justifications that the court used for striking down this is they're like, well, even though we're getting rid of the pre-clearance formula, or, which is a section five argument, there was section two of the Voting Rights Act that still stood and they thought, well, people could still sue after the fact if these laws were gonna violate their rights. And so we saw a lot more section two lawsuits after 2013 um, and, and certain laws then getting struck down, but it was again happening after the fact, which pre-clearance helped prevent. I see. Gary, you wanna add anything to that? Just very briefly, uh, my understanding is most of the devices are changes in the law related around purging of voter rolls and imposing a voter identification requirements. Uh, Ryan, is that is that the gist of it? Yeah, uh, th those were big. A lot of the voting rights stuff is very technical things about like how you draw district lines, where voting machines could be located. So like a jurisdiction that had voting machines on one side of the street they wanted to pass a law and have voting machines on the other side of the street, they'd have to get that pre-cleared. Now, sometimes where you locate voting machines 
is as simple as about, well, what's convenient and what's useful. Other times where you locate voting machines is we're going to put a bunch of voting machines where this group lives and very few voting machines where this group lives. And so a lot of the things are very, very technical. Um, and unless you understand election law really well, it's hard to even understand how it affects voting. But a lot of the stuff is very just like how you draw district lines, how many people get elected, uh, where the districts are, how many people get elected per district, where the voting machines get distributed. It's very, very like nuanced little, little things. But uh, some of the things that got more profile were clearly voter ID laws and other things, which the court had said voter ID laws were fine, except if they were done in certain ways. So, you know, so. And I'm, I was poking around YouTube yesterday uh, and I'm um, doing a little research. And did I have it right by seeing that there was hundreds to thousands of polls that were shut down um, after that 2013 case um, leading into the 2016 election? There was much less um, poll options than there was uh, in the 2012 uh, by, by polls, I just wanted to clarify uh, precincts, voting locations. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and Texas would be one of those places where because it was forced to get its laws pre-cleared, it could not reduce, without getting pre-clearance, it couldn't reduce where polling locations were and voting. Um, after the law passed, a lot of those went away. I have no doubt that some of those going away was not nefarious at all. The question is, which ones were? Uh, the nice thing about preclearance is places could still get those laws implemented. They just had to first apply and show the evidence that this wasn't going to have an impact on uh, protected groups' voting rights. So they could still make those changes, but oftentimes places didn't. Just they didn't want to take the time. They didn't want to pay the filing fee and other things. So once that went away, there was a bunch of changes that happened. Again, no doubt some of these were not nefarious changes. There was lots of changes that happened while preclearance existed too. And we could look at the number of laws that were still implemented before too, which I think helps make that comparison a little better. There were voting polling locations that went away before, but the argument was that if they went away before they were pre-cleared, meaning they probably didn't impact voting rights. Afterwards, we do see an increase, um, some of which I'm sure were not nefarious, but others, I think that's more questionable. And sometimes we make changes that aren't like, it's not necessarily intentional. Right. So one thing is, does it have a disparate impact on communities ability to vote or is it intentionally trying to deny votes? Right. And so preclearance, it wasn't just whether you were trying to like, I want to harm this group, but if you do this, Hey, you may not have thought about it, but what it will do is hurt this native American community's ability to vote or this Hispanic community's ability to vote. So therefore you're not going to be able to do it because here's something you maybe not, you know, you small council has not thought about the fact that where your polling location happens to exist will deny or make it harder for a particular group to vote. Like that's not something that people are often thinking about. And this helped prevent some of that. Gary, you have anything to add? No, not really at this point. I think Ryan summarized it uh, uh, pretty well. The, the, the only thing I would add or, or ask is what formulas that the courts or the Justice Department would use these days to evaluate whether there's uh, disparate uh, voting impacts. That's always been a question I've had. Well, so this is one of the things being debated, right? So, so the big argument in that Shelby County case we were talking about in 2013 was basically, does this formula still like does it still match up with where the greatest voting rights violations are? Now, prior to the Congress reauthorizing that law in 2006, they actually put together hundreds of thousands of pages making the argument that this was the best formula. The majority on the court looked at it and said, ah, we think that that's just that those hundreds of thousands of pages, we don't think you really did your job. We think you just reauthorized what existed before. And so we don't think it was a genuine effort. 
So there is an effort then, um, it's the John Lewis Act uh, that's being debated in the House that would basically come up with a new formula to try to target those places that have the worst violations. Uh, one of the most important pieces of that, which existed before but it's been expanded, is that there's a way for places that are forced to get preclearance to bail out, to get out of coverage if they can show they haven't made any decisions that would impact voting rights, right? And so I think one of the really important pieces, no matter what formula you have, Included in that formula should be ways for places to get out from coverage, right? So maybe a place gets captured for some reason that it had a violation or a certain number of violations 10 years ago. But if it's a good track record, let's find a way for it to get out from coverage. Um, and I think that's really important. And that was my argument for why in 2013, even I thought that the law was okay because places could bail out. And in fact, every place that ever tried to bail out, it was a hundred percent success rate had been able to. Um, but I think that's a really important piece for whatever formula comes forward. And I think that is one of the big debates. What does the formula look like? The Supreme Court in 2013 still said, yes, you can force preclearance, but the formula you've used is inadequate. So Congress is trying to come up with a better formula, which is part of that debate. For me, the most important piece is you've got to have a bailout feature, a way that places can get out from coverage if they can show good faith over a long period of time. And I think a bail-in, which is places that show egregiousness should be added into those places, even if they didn't meet this other. So I think those are two pieces of formula that have to be there. And I think the most important pieces. Yeah. So the the, the question I have, and Ryan can answer this, I've long wondered too, is the bail-in. So is that triggered by a formal complaint to the Justice Department with uh, appropriate data, or do they have to file a lawsuit in the local federal district court to bail in? Yeah. So so the bail-in feature that exists currently um, is all through the courts. So, uh, so basically, if a place gets sued, one of the remedies the court can include is to have them bailed in. So there is this additional protection to jurisdictions, right? So Congress creates this law the way that uh, a structure for which places can be bailed in, but the courts then get to oversee it. And so it'd be federal courts that are then looking at it and saying, yes, your violations are so egregious that um, we're going to actually make you go through this preclearance uh, structure. And so that part actually still exists. Um, it's been used slightly more since 2013, but not a ton. Um, one of the, you know, so I, th I think there's an advantage to having courts do it. One of the disadvantages is that, um, it's you might slow. have different courts around the country looking at things differently. And so you may have some, right. One thing that's nice about Congress setting up a bureaucratic structure that does it is it treats places more equally in some sense. One of the difficulties with courts doing it is you might have some disparate treatment throughout the country. At the same time, it is nice to have that court like review and oversight. So there's, there's different arguments that people can make for whether, which process is good or bad. But, um, but I do think some version of a bail-in and some version of a bailout is necessary. And whether that's through the courts or bureaucratic structure, obviously there has to be some sort of review process. I think that's important. Awesome. We can go into the, the question of where, or what is the current state of the Voters' Rights Act? And maybe we can discuss uh, Arizona and Georgia, um, what's going on in those states, maybe first with Arizona. So, so just a few weeks ago, right? So the most recent case on the Voting Rights Act dealt with this remaining provision of Section 2. So the court struck down this Section 4, Section 5 formula that required preclearance. One of its reasons for doing so is people could still file lawsuits under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And basically, Section 2 just said any voter that feels a law has violated their voting rights can bring a lawsuit. And then there's a certain criteria for which would require that voter to win their, their lawsuit. Um, so the strong argument for why we didn't need this different treatment and preclearance was because we had this. 
So here we come now in 2021, and the argument is, do we get rid of Section 2 also? Do we, or do we change the way that Section 2 works? Uh, one of the things that Section 2 did, um, there was a Supreme Court case from the 1980s that basically said this ability of voters to sue, the way the courts interpret it was, it's only if there was intentional discrimination. So if you heard someone on a hot microphone saying, I am passing this law because I want to deny this group's ability to vote, that would win a lawsuit back then. Congress disagreed with the court said that's not how we meant the law to be. If the law has disparate treatment, meaning even if your intention was not to harm that group's ability to vote, but that's the effect of the law, we want that to count as a win for Section 2. The argument happening now in Arizona is basically Arizona saying, yeah, okay, these laws might have disparate treatment, but we don't think that's the right standard for Section 2. We just think if, if the intention is not to harm, if everybody has equal access to, to vote, even if it has a different treatment, we don't think that that should be enough to win a Section 2 lawsuit. And so it's basically this argument of what's the burden of proof for a voter to win to overturn a state's law that might impair voting rights. And how many Section 2 lawsuits are, are winning? Uh, so there's hundreds of thousands of Section 2 lawsuits. Uh, there was a higher percentage of them filed after the Shelby County decision. Uh, I haven't looked at that data in a while. Um, the, the number of cases has gone up. The expense has gone up. The worry that's being expressed by Arizona is not just whether people win or not, but the fact that it's expensive to defend these lawsuits. And so if people are able to do this, this might cost a lot of money, even if Arizona ends up prevailing in the end. And so they're trying to make the standard, one, they want to make the standard more clear. There seems to be some evidence that courts in one part of the country versus another part of the country are not applying the standard the same. And so they're trying to get that clarified. So for example, the laws in Arizona that are being challenged for disparate treatment are fairly common laws uh, in many other states. And so the, the worry that Arizona is expressing is like lots of places have these laws. Why should our version of it not count, um, you know, not, not be constitutional? The, the argument and rebuttal is yes, but in your state, the way that that same process happens actually has an effect to deny, in, in this case, mostly Native American voting rights. So um, the ability of Native Americans, so Navajo, Hopi um, uh, uh, voting rights, mostly in Arizona. Somewhat facetiously, if Arizona is so concerned about expenses, raise the taxes to pay for them. You're fighting <laughs> the lawsuits or add a few assistant attorney generals. <laughs> well, well, what about Georgia? Let's talk about what's going on in Georgia in the, in the current state. Yeah, so, right. So through the state legislature, they're debating um, various provisions that would change the way that their that elections happen there. I mean, these are the typical, these debates happen all the time, right? So uh, election laws are always debated. The, the thing that's different is that, right, not too far in the recent past, there was preclearance. Georgia was one of these places where they would have to, after they wrote the law, they'd have to appeal to the Justice Department and show evidence that it wasn't going to have a disparate treatment. Uh, the, the big debate then is depending on how we, now that we don't have free clearance, how do we understand this section two requirement of Georgia? So is a voter after this law gets adopted in Georgia, able to go and sue and say that this law impairs my ability to vote. And what's the standard by which we're going to determine impair. Do we determine it based on, Hey, this law, if we look at it is more likely to result in African-Americans, Asian-Americans, native Americans ability to vote. Or are we looking at it just from the lens of, hey, everybody's got an equal access to vote. It's too bad that that, that, that happens that way. 
Here, I'll use an analogy from, uh, this is the attorney for Arizona. And the argument he made is like, look, when we look at civil rights cases um, and other types of civil rights cases, not like the Voting Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act seems to be in this weird case where it makes it harder on states to, to pass their laws. When we look at civil rights cases, imagine an employer has a way of hiring someone and the way of hiring someone is they have to drop off a, an application for the job in person. One thing we might note though is perhaps minorities in our country have less access to cars. And so therefore dropping off an application in person might be harder on them. This policy that the company has that says you have to turn in your application in person would have in this case, a disparate treatment of minorities. If we use that standard then, similarly voting laws like that would be struck down because they have a disparate treatment. But his argument is that's not the right standard then. The standard we should use is look, everybody has the equal chance. We're not saying that blacks can't drop off uh, ballots or that Native Americans can't. We're just, everybody has equal chance to put in an application to apply for the job. People on the other side are saying like, yeah, but that's not enough. It's like, if you understand voting rights uh, well, and if you understand ways to manipulate voting, you can come up with ways of like, hey, let's do this policy because we know it will affect these voters more than these voters. So this Mm -hmm. is the big debate. What standard do we use to determine how we evaluate Georgia's law? If we use one standard, it's more likely that the state is able to adopt the law. If we use another standard, it's more likely that voters are able to bring a lawsuit and win. Which standard do you pick? That's mm-hmm. what the court's really debating. And, and Ryan, I imagine that when the, these voting rights, these changes, these proposed changes in the laws get proposed, that the courts and the attorneys for both sides carefully scrutinize the hearings of the legislature, the appropriate committees. I'm assuming they dig in and see, listen to the debates. I assume if they're transcribed to me, that would be really the only way we could pin down what the motives are, at least the stated motives. And perhaps people let things slip that from their point of view, they wish they hadn't in debate. Absolutely right. So like intentional discrimination, if you can get evidence of it, becomes really clear, right, what to do with it. And occasionally you get examples of this, um, right? Occasionally you get someone who accidentally on a hot microphone is saying, we're going to, you know, screw this group. We hate them. We're going to deny their ability to vote. That's why we're doing it, right? But that's really hard. I mean, for, for, uh, for a legislature that is, you know, even if that's someone's intention, they're usually smart enough not to do it, right? They, they, they come up with a way to cover it. So... So this is where this whole results-oriented thing comes about: is how do we address it in other ways? But um, and so, th- but that's the big debate. It's like, well, okay, everything's going to have an effect. Is sort of the argument that that opponents make. They're like, you know, every law is going to affect different groups differently. How do we possibly know? Like, this just seems like an unbearable standard. And so it's just, this. The big question is, how do we get past just finding intentional discrimination, which is incredibly hard to find? And how, how do we deal with, uh, right? I mean. This was the same argument that was made for literacy tests and grandfather clauses. Well, we're not denying your right to vote based on uh, your race. It's based on your grandfather. And it's like, okay, but we know that's not the motivation. So then the question is, okay, clearly there are honest intentions to improve voting. But the question is, is that happening or is this voter ID law trying to target a group, right? You can have voter ID laws that are clearly just about dealing with fraud and are not intentional discrimination. You can have other ones that are clearly the opposite, right? And sort of the debate about voting ID laws, I I feel it's too bad. It's gone down the realm of they're either good or bad rather than there are different ways to do voter ID laws and requiring photo identification. If you do it in certain ways, it probably doesn't discriminate all that much. If you do it other ways, it clearly does. And so the debate is really how do you do it, not whether you do it at all, right? So 
Texas's voter ID law, when they started to do it, they made it incredibly difficult to get IDs. You had to pay for an ID. You had to travel really far to get it. Um, if you didn't have an ID on the day, you couldn't vote provisionally. There was all these specifics. If you allow certain ways to like get a free ID, make it accessible to everybody, make them easily to get, um, allow people to vote provisionally if they don't have it and then come back a certain number of days later with it to have their vote. That's not nearly as problematic as a different type of voter ID law, right? And I think the, the argument has gotten so lost where some people are just no voter ID ever and other people, all voter ID is okay. And I think the argument is, how are you doing it? You make a good point. And that, that leads in nicely to voter fraud. And if voter fraud is is happening, did it happen in the last election? And what does it look like when somebody is com- committing voter fraud, if, if that is happening? I mean, there's little to no evidence of any like mass voter fraud. There are some scattered examples. The retort to that, though, is for those that are really concerned about it is well, it's something that's really hard to get evidence of, right? So the same way that I'm making this argument that intentional voter discrimination is really hard to get evidence of, mm-hmm. but we think it happens. Other folks make the argument that voter fraud is really hard to get evidence of, but we think it happens, right? Uh, but in terms of evidence, there's very little evidence of it occurring. There are some scattered examples. There's definitely not many examples of it happening in a systematic large way that would flip outcomes of elections. There are some at local levels. Uh, the types of fraud that tends to happen tends to be when these vote harvesting acts. So, so someone going to a ballot and impersonating someone else and casting it like that, like, like never happens. One, the penalty is so high and the, the ability that, that would change an election is not going to happen. Where we tend to see stuff then, it, and even these are rare, but vote harvesting, where I, as a representative of a particular party or candidate, am allowed to gather ballots from a bunch of people and I can drop them off in unison. There's a huge benefit where it makes it easier for people to vote doing that, but it also means I could affect a lot of votes all at once by drop, not dropping off the ones that go against the candidate that I want or only taking these certain ones or remarking the ballots. There are some small examples of that. Uh, the biggest one actually came out from the, this most recent election. There was one, um, and it was around uh, Republicans in the state of Georgia actually doing some vote harvesting this way. This is one of the worries Arizona had, though, the, that they were worried that the Democratic Party was doing this vote harvesting in an illegal way in Arizona. There's no evidence of it yet, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So um, this is the big debate. But but individuals going and casting a ballot, that's not how voter fraud tends to happen. Like That just doesn't exist. And so some of these laws around voter ID is affecting not the way that voter fraud tends to happen. It tends to happen in these much more large scale and these other types of processes. I see. I think some of the concerns, and Ryan's right, I mean, we've yet to see our solid evidence uh, of uh, massive uh, voter fraud with uh, elections, but as he indicated, doesn't mean it may not necessarily be happening. I think some of the concern is with the massive use of mail-in ballots, on one, and there's a tension here. On one hand, I think everybody's in agreement. We want to make it as easy and simple for registered voters to be able to vote. And in an ideal world, you know, mail ballots do exactly that. You know, there's a period of time where kind of like divorce, you had to prove something was wrong to get a divorce. And we had something like that with voting. You had to have a reason to get a mail-in ballot, which fortunately that's all gone. But I think the problem that some people see is if we have massive use of mail and ballots without any accountability checks, or maybe few in the eyes of some, 
that may lead potentially in the future to large-scale voting fraud, as opposed to somebody going to a conveniently located polling place. And, you know, we haven't even touched upon it. It's maybe premature to even talk about the whole idea of internet-based voting, you know, or from your privacy of your own home or computer. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? Either of you see that being um, a thing in the future, maybe the next couple elections? Well, if if I can uh, take the lead, at least the internet voting, I think Brian may or may not agree with me. It's extremely problematic right now. We we all have seen zillions of uh, uh, cases of internet hacking, um, and uh, the, the 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 franchise, the right to vote, is simply too important not to put some pretty heavy duty safeguards in place. It's one thing when you have uh, voting centers that you know tabulate the ballots, the paper ballots, and that brings in the issue. Uh, at least with even mail-in voting, you have a physical ballot that could be stored and manually recounted if uh, called into question. With internet voting from your own computer screen, you know, blips, electronic transmissions, who's to say that your machine is is uh, secure or the servers where the software is being played out and votes are tabulated? So uh, I, I'm i at least hearing uh, anecdotally that uh, uh for now, unless we can find some way of really providing secure networks, that your garden variety of internet-based voting is extremely problematic right now. I mean, the big issue is to restore trust, a lot of which has been lost for one reason or another in the whole voting process. Mm-hmm. So the internet voting thing is is an interesting thing, right? And I think uh, Gary has some good expertise in this. He actually used to work on voting machines. Um, was one of his jobs. So the old nine hundred pound gorillas. Um, <laughs> but with, yeah. But I think Gary can attest to the fact that uh, technological change and updating and voting happens pretty slow. So as slow as things happen in society, this is this is going to be one of the last areas where this tends to happen. There have been some jurisdictions. There was this great story a few years back. There are some jurisdictions on the East Coast that were interested in doing internet voting. And so as part of rolling or trying to test this out, they they came up with a system they weren't actually going to use, but they wanted to see what would happen. And so they put a call out to hackers to see, can you hack into this thing that we're going to test run? And within a few hours, college students had hacked in and, and done it. So they're like, okay, well, this iteration clearly doesn't work. It like got hacked in a couple of hours by college students. I mean, really smart college students, clearly. Um, so... So like yeah, I think that's a long ways away. Yeah, um, I do think, right, Gary's right, uh, restoring trust. One of the things that's really cool for us in Humboldt County, we have a great elections office here um, and things work very, very smoothly. And one of the cool things that we've actually pioneered, we're the first place in the entire country to do, they had this voter accountability project where they take every single ballot cast in Humboldt County, they scan it, and then they put it up on the internet. And so basically any voter can go and count up the ballots from the election. And in fact, after one of the elections, when they did this, uh, some voter that spent the time scrolling through actually noticed that the vote count was off by like, I don't know, it was four or 10. It was, it was some minor number. Uh, this happened about 10 years ago and they counted up the votes. And they're like, hey, here's an error here. And the elections office was able to go and change it. Most elections offices are very nervous to do this. They think that putting this information out, like if people are able to find, oh my God, they were off by four votes that that would destroy the trust in their elections office. Mm. I think our elections office appropriately recognized, no, putting this information out there will allow people to have more confidence in it, right? It, if mm. we make an error, you can see it. And in fact, we rarely make errors. Um, so, you know, one of the difficulties about voting in the United States is it's 
one of the most hyper-federalized systems we have. There are 10,000 different voting districts in the country. So you've got different rules, those 10,000 places about how vote happens. So it's a really complex, difficult system, very different than other places. That also makes it maybe more likely that some places do interneting or make changes. It also makes it likely, right? If you've got 10,000 districts, you have some districts that literally have no budget and probably not a very good IT department or a very secure, you know, the person that runs the IT and the security, uh, internet security is the same person that does the dog catching. And so, you know, like this is a, a difficult thing about how you, you deal with this. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of um, answered it indirectly earlier, but voter suppression, you know, you talked about poll tax and the grandfather um, clause. What is, what is the current um, voter suppressions that are, that are happening, if there are any? And, you know, Ryan, let me jump in and actually by asking you a question, it's long bothered me and you, you would know, given your expertise in the VRA, the current state of the law. But for decades, if not most of Florida's history, they've had filing fees, which when I, I thought growing up in Florida was the norm. You had to pay as much as two to $5,000 to run for a state Senate seat. And city council office, virtually everybody had filing fees. I mean, like I said, these could run into four figures. So um, I'm wondering, Ryan, if you know of whether or not the courts have struck those down as essentially discriminatory and an undue burden on the right to participate in the system. Um, any thoughts? I don't know if other states use filing fees. Uh, other places do. Um, so I actually don't know, like, I mean, that would be an interesting thing to challenge. Right. So, right. So you have on one hand, you have the voters. On the other hand, you have who gets to run for office. Um, right. So what Gary's talking about here and, and who gets the, you know, the ability to run. Um, I mean, interestingly enough, in California, we tend to have more protections for who runs for office than who uh, can vote. So, for example, 10 years ago, there was a person who was incarcerated at the time and ran for school board. They were on They could not vote for themselves. Probably the first candidate in history who wasn't going to cast the ballot for themselves because uh, they couldn't vote. Their voting rights were denied because they were, you know, uh, incarcerated. As California denies your right to vote while you're literally in prison. But the person ran, uh, did not win. But it would have been an interesting case of if a person won while in prison, what's the obligation of the prison to get him to his meetings, etc. Uh, maybe in this era of Zoom, he would have been able to attend. I don't know. But um, so. In many instances, we have great protections to run for office than for voting. In other instances, as Gary pointed out, the fact that you have to do filing fees can make it burdensome for certain people to, to run for office too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm mystified under the current state of the law that, you know, especially it runs in the thousands of dollars, what legitimate reason they really have. I mean, you know, they put on the election whether you have two candidates or eight running for, say, a legislative seat and to impose a fee of like upwards of maybe even $5,000 or to get a number of signatures. And the way Florida handles it is uh, you either pay this four-figure fee or you get hundreds and hundreds of signatures on a nominating petition to bypass that. It just seems to be something I'm surprising voter advocacy groups haven't uh, tried to clamp down on. It just smacks of kind of elitism. Yeah, and I know Texas makes it particularly difficult to get on a ballot um, for if you're running for president in Texas, it's incredibly difficult to get on the number of signatures you have to get and who you have to get the signatures from. Like in so Texas, for example, not only do you have to get signatures to get on the ballot, but they have to be signatures of people pledging that they would vote for you, and they can't be registered in a different party. And I mean, it, it, it's 
So this is another area of voting rights where, right. So, so, I mean, maybe they're talked about as candidate rights, but on some level who gets the ability to run also affects who we get to vote for. Right. Right. Bringing up the question of voter suppression today. And like, so what most commonly talked about today is what's called vote dilution. It's a way of making your vote count for less. And so it generally is how do you draw districts in a way that might make it so that people's vote doesn't count as much. Um, So what certain jurisdictions have done or ways of getting around this is you can draw uh, either you'll have what are known as uh, uh, districts that are basically for the whole area, or you might have specific districts that can vote. And so one way of, of affecting groups is if you have a place where, let's say there's a high concentration of African-Americans or Asian-Americans in a particular place, that group might be very likely to elect their preferred candidate if you draw a district that encompasses that group. But what you can always do is draw a district that you split that group up in numerous ways, and it doesn't have enough voting power to elect anyone. Or you go to a, a general d- election where basically you elect candidates from the entire area, while that minority group might have a lot of people in one spot and could win a district, they may not be able to predict their preferred candidate in a larger district. So a lot of the ways that, that current vote suppression happens is, has to do with like vote dilution. How do you make people's vote count less based on how you draw districts? This was one of the examples we saw after uh, the Shelby County decision there was a jurisdiction in Texas, Pasadena, Texas, and they, they used to have, um, they had nine districts. And what they were going to do is they're going to get, they were gonna change it to go to, to or from nine districts down to seven districts with two elected at large for the entire area. And what this was going to have the effect of doing was have fewer uh, uh, Latinx um, members of the council likely elected. Um, and so there was a huge voting uproar over this, uh, Pasadena, Texas filed a lawsuit based on section two. I think they, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, voters in Pasadena, Texas filed a lawsuit against the district and I think they ended up winning, but all of that would have been prevented by preclearance, but you get into much more technical types of denials, right? So our technical denials before were grandfather clauses, literacy tests, poll taxes, sort of strategies like that, where you locate voting machines. That's still a common one. Where do you locate how many voting machines per district? Mm-hmm. There's lots of imagery you can see where like, you know, if you vote in Beverly Hills, there's one voting machine per person and you can drive up and you're catered and it's a nice voting experience. And you go to some other places wow. and you wait in line for four or five hours, right? You um, know, so, I mean, it, when you see these lines where they tend to be, and, and generally who controls the voting machines is who controls the state legislature. So a Democratic controlled state legislature has an incentive to put more voting machines in Democratic districts and fewer in Republicans. And a different state that's controlled by Republicans has an incentive to put more voting machines in Republican districts and fewer in Democratic districts. And this is one of the things the Voting Rights Act is trying to address, but you need a voter to bring a lawsuit to that. And I often, as a voter in California, I don't know if I have fewer voting machines than I should. Like, like how do I have a good sense of, oh my gosh, there's X number of voting machines per voter in my district, but in that district, there's X number of voting. I mean, yeah, we don't know. It's incredible burden to put on a, a voter to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Definitely. A lot of the ways of suppressing votes is very, very technical, right? So, mm-hmm. and we have some evidence that some of it is intentional. I, it doesn't, it's also clear to me that sometimes they're unintentional, but it still has the effects. And then other times I think some of these changes are benign and don't have any effects at all. But, um, but it takes a lot of like really digging. And I think that that's actually not that much of a break from history that it took people a while to understand what a grandfather clause, a literacy test, where poll, like mm-hmm. poll taxes did. 
I think it's taking people a while to understand location of ballot, of voting machines, uh, what way the way that voter ID is done. All of these things become difficult, but I think we're starting to be able to see that. And I think at some point in the future, we'll look back and be like, well, it's really clear that voting laws like this were obviously intended to. We just we're struggling to see it because it's in front of us happening right now. And and we all have motivated reasoning too, right? Mm -hmm. I have an incentive based on the types of candidates I like to think that their motives are better than the candidates that I don't like. Um, And I tend to think that those types of policies are okay. And likewise, people that disagree with me and prefer different types of candidates, they look at those policies and they think, oh, those are probably okay because we have certain motivated reading that once we get some hindsight, we're able to look back and we don't have that same motivated reason. We're like, oh my God, it's really obvious. How could people possibly have supported such things? Mm -hmm. Very true. Well said. Um, well, there's been some um, change in laws in Arizona and Texas and Georgia um, and um, some election laws specifically. And why do you think those states in particular are trying to change some election laws? Here's the thing. So the argument has been, and I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence to actually back it up. In fact, the evidence I think actually runs counter. But the argument coming out of this election was that that making it easier for people to vote by mail and making it easier for people to vote made it more likely that Joe Biden won rather than than Donald Trump. Um, And so legislatures then that are controlled by the opposite party of Joe Biden are then trying to respond to this and and, and do this. The Mm. the thing is, uh, the best evidence that political science is coming up with is that this the changes to mail and voting that happened would have had no difference in the outcome that that Joe Biden was going to win. Right. That in general, these changes in policies don't seem to, to have affected one party more than another. There's a lot of thought that they do. Uh, political science has not been able to find any good evidence that if you increase or decrease vote favors one party over another. But it tends to look like as those that do vote and those that don't vote tend to have pretty similar opinions. So if you got more of those non-voters to vote, it doesn't seem like it shifts outcomes. That's the best evidence we have from political science. Now, the common thought is what most people think is that somehow non-voters look a particular way and it's going to, you know, so oftentimes people think that if more non-voters, it's going to favor Democrats. That's the most common argument. But there was a lot of evidence that from Donald Trump that a lot of people that had previously never voted, they they voted for him in 2016. So as best we can tell from the best evidence, uh, getting more people to vote has not favored one party over another. Mm. But there is a belief that that's true. Mm-hmm. And so then jurisdictions are trying to, to do that. I think also those are the areas that we're more likely to believe, right? There was a lot of claims that there was a lot of fraud in those last elections. Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be evidence of that, but a lot of people believe it. I mean, I get it, right? I happen to be a political science, so I know the evidence here, but I believe a lot of things that are not evidence-based in other areas of my life, right? So <laughs> the fact that people believe some of these things that there isn't evidence for, mm-hmm. humans do that constantly, right? I heard something on the news about this. I, I probably have all sorts of beliefs about like, COVID-19 are completely false because I don't understand nearly enough about public health and all of the science that goes behind medicine. Mm-hmm. But once political scientists start looking at it, we look at it a little differently and we're like, yeah, there just isn't evidence of that. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that people's motivations aren't based on things that aren't evidence-based. Um, and that's true all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. People are afraid of- to fly, but they aren't afraid to drive. <laughs> and like driving is way more dangerous than flying. That's true. Very true. Um, right. We, we, we act counter evidence constantly. So the fact that people are acting in a way that they think is likely to counter fraud, even though there's not evidence of fraud, that doesn't mm-hmm. surprise me, but it does mean that we probably have a lot of work to do to like, let's try to instill some more evidence-based debate. Like, how do we get the courts involved? How do we get legislatures to 
what the job of elected officials is supposed to be, which is to enlarge and enrich the discussion rather than sometimes debasing the discussion. Mm-hmm. Brian brings up an interesting, you know, interesting discussion on voter turnout. And I've long wondered, you know, in an ideal world, and of course, I, like most other people, would love to see as many people who want to vote vote. But uh, sometimes it's interesting that we make such a demon out of a low voter turnout. And, you know, there are a variety of reasons why people choose not to vote. Time and convenience and a lot of them, a lot, which uh, Ryan would appreciate is uh, the lesser the two evil syndrome, you know, of the candidates running. There isn't anybody that we really would like. So perhaps low voter turnout uh, is assuming that we make uh, the uh, accessible access to the ballot box as open as possible, those that choose not to vote perhaps ought not to be so demonized as some parts of society do. Uh, You know, in an ideal world, and Ryan would probably agree, in the ideal world, to make democracy work requires informed choices and an informed electorate. At least California is one of those states that tries through pamphlets, public information, to make as much information available as possible about candidates. But um, that's long disturbed me in political science that we that uh, sometimes we get in too much of a panic if we have low voter turnouts, though, again, in an ideal world, it'd be great to have as many people vote that choose to. Some jurisdictions have even talked about making voting mandatory, but I hopefully we're not anywhere near that yet, hmm. if ever. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it would be a Voters' Rights Act conversation if we didn't mention John Lewis. Um, so if maybe... You guys can um, give a little brief of who John Lewis is um, and the possible changes in the Voters' Rights Act with uh, under his name that is possibly um, coming up soon. I mean, John Lewis is one of these like icons of, of American history. And like, he, he seems to have lived multiple different lives in terms of what, right? So <laughs> most recently at the point where he deceased, he was a Congress member from Georgia. But like, he was also the youngest in, uh, to speak um, during uh, when Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, John Lewis was speaking right before that. Uh, John Lewis was the one who, when they were marching over the bridge and to Selma, Alabama about voting rights, uh, he's the one who, the famous iconic picture of getting clubbed over the head with Billy Club, which gets called Blood Sunday, and then leads to the impetus to pass the Voting Rights Act. Basically, that like made it happen. So, right? so he's the one that like, of his page being captured, getting his skull cracked is the one that basically leads to the Voting Rights Act. He is in the White House when the Voting Rights Act is signed. He is on the stage with Martin Luther King when Martin Luther King is giving his I Have a Dream speech. He, because of the Voting Rights Act and the change in voting that happens uh, in Georgia and the new voters that come in, he gets elected as a member of Congress. He's there for a number of years. I mean, he was a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I mean, you can just go on and on and on about the things that John Lewis was involved in. At the point in 2013, when the court struck down a provision of the Voting Rights Act, uh, he's the one that led the whole, like, we've got to come up with a new formula and we've got to have a new Voting Rights Act to deal with this, right? So that was his idea. And so the House has now named their new attempt at doing this new formula after him. So which I think is appropriate. makes sense. I know. Uh, um, so he, he was really pushing for that since 2013. Like he immediately... Uh, went and said, we need to do this. He was working for that up until the point where he died. That was one of the big things he was really pushing on. Um, so the house is named this in honor of him. And as Gary said, right, the big thing is just, you know, how do we figure out the right formula? I think uh, some people would argue that we shouldn't do that at all, that that process, but this is John Lewis's legacy and what he thought was important. And, he, and there 
house is trying to find a way to, to honor that with the right of a formula. And I might add that some years ago, I don't know who started it, but there's a na- actually a National Voting Rights Museum in Selma, Alabama. I have relations on my wife's side that's that lives nearby. So the next time we're down there, that's definitely uh, one of the places I'd like to go and uh, check out. Definitely. Awesome. Well, this um, the new um, reauthorization or change in the Voters Rights Act with his name under it that is happening right now. Do you think that will pass? Ryan, I'm going to defer to uh, you uh, on your prognostications. Here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in a, a prognostication here, although I, I probably shouldn't, I, I said that after I got a few elections wrong recently that I've smashed my crystal ball and stopped making predictions. <laughs> but here I go uh, back on my word. Apparently that prediction wasn't very good either. I've turned around and started making predictions again. Um, so with that caveat, uh, I don't see a lot of hope for it passing currently. Um, I think in part, things have become so polarized around voting rights. Um, so for example, you're either opposed to voting, uh, voter ID, photo, photo ID, or you're in favor of it rather than how do we make it work? I think what's happened around this, the same thing. You're either in favor of voting rights that includes this version of preclearance, or you're opposed to it completely, not how do we get it right? Um, I feel that that's largely what's driving a lot in Congress right now. So I don't have a lot of hope that it'll pass because I think it's become polarized in that way. And I think it's a real shame because um, I think that, that it, again, it was one of the most effective pieces of legislation in history. And I think I wish the debate would be, how do we do this right? Rather than we do it or we don't do it. I don't feel a lot of hope right now for that. And I think because of the polarization and the way that everyone's seeing things through the lens of the most recent election, rather than this longer trajectory of history, how do we protect voting rights. You know, I th- I agree with m- most, if not all of what Ryan said, except the one point, and I don't have any information that's certainly on a par with Ryan's, but I have to wonder out loud, at least, with, uh, with the Democrats uh, controlling the two branches of government, you know, the White House and both houses of Congress, albeit by the slimmest of majorities, I wonder if yet there isn't some hope for some change along those lines. I don't know, but Ryan may uh, putting on the politician, you know, the the, the reality hat, I suppose. He may well be right that uh, this session, at least, one only knows. But of course, we've got a midterm election looming around the corner. What in about 16 months? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So who knows? The the constant elections in the United States. Yeah. Two year Um, terms for for a national office, a House of Representatives member. Wow. Mm hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, great. You all that's uh that has it. That completes all the questions I had for you today. I definitely learned a lot um, about the Voters Rights Act from you, too. So I hope the listeners gained a lot of knowledge and, and very valuable information. I think voting is something that we all should um, definitely take a big part in our life. Like you said, every two years, there's these different representatives that we need to vote on. There's the um, you know, the voting for the president every four years and, and the local votes. I mean, how important are these local elections for local um, officials? And I'm sure you guys can have a lot to say about how important all aspects of voting are today. But if each of you want to maybe just say a little closing statement about uh, maybe voting or elections or the Voting Rights Act, then we can conclude this podcast. I guess I'd like to just uh, make a plea to people. Uh, it's just important to get educated in the issues. You know, in the old days, you have to wait for that cumbersome pamphlet. But now with a web, 
you know, look at a variety of sources from the comfort of your TV chair, your favorite armchair or something, and look and find out and be informed. It's so critical. I know Ryan, along with me, we really drive this home to our poli-sci students. Uh, get involved, uh, you know, get informed and get out there and vote. It's just so important to make our country work, and whether it's the local level, or city council or president of the United States. So that's my plea. Yeah, and I think emphasizing that local thing, there's 500,000 elected officials in the United States. Um, so people often focus on the president or the members of Congress, but we have 500,000 elected officials. Um, oftentimes these offices, and this happens in Humboldt County, even there's offices that come up and no one runs or there's three seats available and two people run. And so trying to get more people to run is really, really important, right? That's how we're gonna get better people there. And I think people don't realize this. Uh, and I think also that these elections oftentimes have more effect on our lives than, than the national elections. And our vote counts a lot more there, right? So if an election uh, has a hundred voters in it, my vote is one of a hundred. When I vote for the president, my vote is diluted by millions and millions of people. Like I have a really small part to play in that. Mm -hmm. But locally, I can have a lot of power. Um, you know, I, if I get 10 friends to go vote in an election that has 100 voters, we can literally change that outcome. And so I think trying to get people to pay more attention to that, um, the school boards and other things like that, like we can make much more change there. And much of what the Voting Rights Act was about was how that voting happens at the local level um, and it has probably more effect on that than anything else. And I think people trying to pay attention to that, to those 500,000 elected officials um, mm -hmm. that we have in this country and how many offices are available. And hopefully people, you know, think of yourself as a potential candidate. We need people to run. Well said. Awesome. Well, this was a great conversation. I know the viewers got a lot of info and valuable knowledge. So you two have a great, amazing day. Thanks for being on our podcast and keep spreading the great word. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody.